here I am. Okay, I don't know if you folks out there are really out there. We think that we are operating both uh, live on Sermon Audio and live on Facebook. Is that true? true. We believe that's true. doesn't make it true. (laughs) We believe. We have confidence in our operational system here. Uh, A couple of quick things. Uh, I will be going into surgery uh, again, unfortunately, for renal issues, for kidney issues, on the 12th of March. And if I, we don't know for sure, I haven't been told, it could be an extracorporeal shockwave lithotripsy, which is essentially shooting radio frequencies or sonic waves towards the blockages that are in my kidneys, trying to break them up so that they'll expel through a natural process. But it could easily be, that's non-invasive, but it could really easily be a nephrolithototomy. Lithototomy, sorry, I can barely say it. Ototomy, which means that that's a, that's a surgery and that's uh, going to take a long time for me to recover from that. I think that the March 14th is probably in doubt because both both of them are pretty difficult, I understand. The bright side in all of that is is that I have uh, more discussions with the anesthesiologists. And, uh, you know, it's always great. I have to be under general anesthesia for both of those procedures. And so that means that I get to talk to them about uh, mathematics and consciousness which they all love. They all want to talk about that. I'm going to use uh, this opportunity to uh, continue with, if I get the same guy, I hope I do, or the same lady, I get. I can talk to them about integrated information theory, uh, which is the quantum physics community is beginning to try to tackle consciousness. They think that it is quantumized, if you will. Uh, they'd be wrong about that. But uh, you have to understand the general relativity um, cannot be correct. Einstein cannot be right because um, it does not reconcile with the quantum gravity theory and so forth. It must, therefore it must be replaced by quantum gravity theory. Einstein believed that uh, gravity is a, an effect. As you know, Newton said it was a force uh, and, uh, and the problem with general relativity is that uh, Einstein incorporated time as a dimensional uh, element quantum gravity uh, may not include time at all, and when you talk to quantum physicists, they're the ones that say also as well as Einstein. Einstein would say that time is a construction of consciousness of a human consciousness. Quantum gravity says that time does not exist, so or quantum gravity theory. So those are the kinds of discussions I get to have with the anesthesiologists because ultimately they descend into consciousness. Remember, if you've been with me for any length of time, you know that Max Planck said that quantum gravity uh, is consciousness. Uh, Time is consciousness. Those are the theological positions, and I believe that they ultimately will prevail because they're right. There's some wonderful new theories about time, and I'll be presenting those to you. There's new books out all the time, but there's one by a guy named Julian Barbour, who I'm particularly interested in. It's called A New Theory of Time. So if you want to buy that and have it as a textbook, so when we get into it, you'll be able to uh, maybe have a head start. Okay, enough of that.
I have to say this, I had a left anterior fascicular block when I was in for my last evaluation. That means that my heart went into arrhythmia again. So it's the first time in 18 months I had a heart rate go over 249 for a very brief part of time. Um, that's the common atrial ventricular uh, bundle of hiss. There's an electrical system, electrical circuit, and mine went into what's called a fascicular block. So things are not going great for me. Let's just put it that way. Let's have to see how it all works out. I'm planning to keep going, as you know, but I may not have any control. Okay, enough of that. We've got a late start here. Let me see how late I am. I'm pretty late. February the 28th, uh, 2021, lecture discussion number 131 on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes, Job, 1 Kings 13, 2 Kings 23. So, okay, last week was mostly kind of a restart because we had missed a couple of weeks and I was not doing really well, so I just uh, did my best. And I had a few unexplored subjects placed alongside previously discussed materials. and uh, Pretty much it was a review uh, with supplemental additions. And if you recall, and statistically there are those, uh, the, those that do recall are under the measurability threshold. In other words, not very many people recall from... Uh, not even me, from lecture to lecture. I have to review what I said to understand it, to know where to go. But uh, I'll just concede that someone in this vast Internet audience has some attachment to lecture number 130. And if you remember, then that person would know that what I did primarily uh, was uh, discuss a letter from Mary Ann from Arkansas. I almost said Australia, but I meant Arkansas. In any event, Mary Ann from Arkansas was engaged with this question of the dust of the earth. Oh, I should say really fast. Let me start erasing things. Here's my situation with the kidney. This is the ureter. That is a kidney. I was explaining this to Lori. I have particulates. Uh, they are calcium oxide, oxalates, both high and low. And obviously the ones that are higher uh, will gravitate just by hydraulics and by gravity into the ureter and that's what's happening to me is they're blocking. And when that happens, of course, the kidneys begin to shut down. They go into renal failure and I had acute renal failure and uh, and then your blood doesn't get cleansed and you end up with all kinds of uh, uh, difficult situations. And in my case, the one that's the most difficult and if it happens, then I will immediately go to the emergency room again there is a relationship between blockages in the ureter and vomiting. As soon as you get one in the ureter, your, your brain decides that you have to vomit. And it is a ferocious process. Okay, enough of that. Mary Ann was, uh, she was interested in this question of the dust of the earth. Which is Fantastic. Uh, that's Genesis 2-7, of course, and which is uh, one of the most amazing scriptures in all of the Bible. But uh, to be more specific, 
it's the body of Adam, was formed from the materials of the earth and all of the issues that are inside of that statement. Marianne, I believe from her letter, obviously, is captivated by the question of this dust of the ground, as well she should be. Why God made the body of man from the dust? That's ultimately the question, or essentially the question. And the bodies of animals also from the dust. And I, I think it was the identical process. What you see described of Adam in Genesis 2-7 was for each and every individual animal as well, even though he probably did them at a, at a, uh, simultaneously. Maybe sequentially. It's a, there is a sequential uh, aspect to it, but we don't know for sure. O- only the ones that witnessed it, Job 38.7, got to, would be able to tell you the process exactly. But in any event, the dust of the ground. Why is it that the bodies disintegrate, descend back to the dust? That is an astonishing expeditionary uh, discussion or problem to, to deal with. And is always the case when the omniscient creator of all things executes an action, he has a profusion, he has a superabundance, that would be a more accurate word, I think, uh, of inference and or reasonings that I, I am prone to call and what I call connectivities. In other words, he has this massive amount of far-reaching, far-collecting, far-interconnecting uh, situation, for lack of a better word, when he does something. And it's through the connectivities that the, that the searchers of Scripture, and that's us, can, can, we can shallowly or dimly de- determine or detect his purposes. We are the seekers of what he's trying to do. Our plan or our commandment, I guess, our order, our orders, are to start to try to think like him. Why did he make the body of Adam, I'll just reduce it to Adam, from the dust of the earth? And again, omniscience means there is no other option. This is the only option. Why is that the only option? Um, Omniscience drives you to that particular positioning. Obviously, the prominent scriptures that we're going to deal with here are Genesis 2-7, Genesis 2-9. Those are the ones that are, uh, that obviously are at the very top. And then we'll have Genesis 2-21-23. And uh, lastly, uh, we'll have, uh, uh, let me make sure I don't leave anything out here, Genesis 3.19. Now, Genesis 3.19 is dust you will return. Genesis 2.7 is the dust of the earth. Genesis 2.9 gives you more information, as does Genesis 2.22 through 23, as to this process. And you begin to simulate everything you need, all the evidences, so that you can make a decision. Uh, so, Marianne's question was this, and I will, I'll, well, I'll read what she wrote, and then I will read what I changed it to. How's that? She said, I am stu- still stuck in Genesis, and my mind is going in circles this morning over a simple yet extremely complicated thought. Boy, is she right about that. Of what kind of meaning is actually behind the idea of man being cre- created from the ground? And she has exclamation points, uh, as well as questions. So, I'm going to change that. I'm going to say, what kind of meaning is actually behind the idea of Adam's body being created from the dust of the earth? Notice the distinctions. I emphasized Adam's body and earth. 
And so I can make those additions. They're ever so slight. They weren't that great, right? Uh, but I can make those additions because uh, of the HTRP. I would point to it, but it's not on the board. Earth obviously refers back to Genesis 1 1, doesn't it? Uh, and Genesis 1 2. So when I see the word earth, I go first, where's the first place that earth is mentioned in the Bible? Genesis 1-1, Genesis 1-2. But I'm I'm getting the horse behind the cart here. So let's go and read those really fast. Everybody knows them. But just pay attention this time as much as you can to some of the little nuances that are there. So we'll start in 2-7. And the Lord God. Now that's the Y-H-V-H. When you see the Lord capitalized the, the L, the O, the R, the D, that means that is the ineffable, unexplainable, unpronounceable uh, uh, name of God. We would say Yahweh or Jehovah, but it's Y-H-V-H. And the Lord God, that's the Tetragrammaton. That is the burning bush. That's uh, three six of Exodus, three fourteen of Exodus. So this is the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. And that process is unbelievable, and I can't, you never read that enough. Let's jump nine. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree that grows that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Uh, 2.21, and the Lord God caused a deep sleep on Adam, and as he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had made from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, now this is, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. 3.19, of course, you know this one. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are. And it's not really, it's not, R is not in the text. For dust you, and to dust you shall return. Notice that eat bread. Oh, there we are to that uh, unnamed prophet in Kings, right? You shall not eat bread. This is eat bread. Okay, those are very familiar passages, and most uh, most Bible scholars uh, are confident they have command of those verses or these verses, and, and that would uh, be a mistake. Uh, these uh, that would be a violation of the rule of infinity. God is infinite. He remembers all things, and which is why last week I said that the answer to Mary Ann's question was that Jesus Christ is the divine rememberer. Again, that thief on the cross, remember me. If you, if Christ remembers you, he writes you in the Lamb's book of life, and you have eternity with him, what he calls life. He calls life eternity with him. Uh, if you are separated from him, he, that is referred to as death. We'll get to that again in a minute. But he is the divine rememberer. He is uh, the one who remembers. He has the assignment of remembering. He is the one that writes the names in his book of life, the Lamb's book of life. And I, I gave that answer. I postponed revealing that supposed answer. That's the answer to Marianne's question. Christ is the divine rememberer. doesn't seem like an answer. I know that. but I, And I did it in... At the very end of the lecture, last page, as a matter of fact, I was waiting until it was. I was positive that everyone who was listening last week were soundly asleep. That's that's my favorite instructional approach, as you know, much to the, the delight of nobody ever. But uh, I'm 
very steadfast, loyal to the method. I have a reason for doing what I do, though some would think that it is uh, not planned. It actually is. The plan. I'm not going to defend how well it's planned. I'm just going to tell you that I do a lot of things on purpose. I also now drink 10 glasses of water a day in order to try not to have the excruciating pain that comes with this new plague that I have. I don't know how to describe it otherwise. It's brutal. If any of you are out there and you have kidney stones that exceed 5 millimeters, then you know that that is a brutal condition. So far they've removed one of mine that was 7 millimeters. So that's essentially the size of a a 327 magnum diameter bullet. That's what it was. And and, uh, I don't even know how I made it through it. I was the most miserable, crying, whiny person in the entire state of Alaska. And it's coming again. I have so many of them now that uh, that's the reason for the surgery. Again, hopefully it, it can be resolved uh, with uh, sonic shock waves and not cutting my back open and digging into the kidney with a scalpel. But we'll see. Anyway, the answer is within the scope of Christ's infinite mind. He has an infinite mind. He can process infinity. That's a, That seems like a contradiction, but... That's what we're up against here. His he his remembrance is in his in, infinite mind, as is his omniscience. He knows all things. He remembers all things. Those two, of course, are almost a redundancy. When he made Adam's body from the dust of the earth, he's able to account for every possible, all the components that have any relation, any connectivity. You reuse the term over and over again but anything that might in any way be impacted by what he did, by taking and making the body of animals, living beings, we'll get to that in a minute, and Adam, who of course is a living being from the dust of the earth, start contemplating what options you might think he could have done otherwise. Again, he cannot, because omniscience makes this the imperative. There is no other option. Why is that so? That's essentially Marianne's question. And I'm answering that because he is the rememberer, the divine rememberer. That's why. So when he makes Adam's body, he's able to put all the pieces together and he includes them in a precise order. Again, omniscience requires that he do it that way. There is no other way he he would do it. There is nothing that Jesus God says, and that's all one word, Jesus God, says or does that is detached Everything reaches out and back and adheres to something, usually many somethings. And Dave got a wonderful letter from a gentleman uh, uh, that he sent to me here that he was communicating with. Where the the gentleman um, I don't remember the name. Could you Gabriel. Gabriel? Okay, Gabriel was wanting to talk about matrices essentially and uh, three dimensional aspects of how the Bible is created, which is absolutely. Uh, appropriate. The Bible is ridiculously structured. No human being could possibly do this. And so that's one of our great proofs. <coughs> Excuse me. So the question evolves thusly. What exactly was Christ remembering? Now this is <coughs> because, again, let me put the disclaimer up there. Because 
because I am the HTRP, I can say something like this. Yes, ma'am. The Bible's blocking the microphone. Oh. Wow. Thank you. You are really wise. Man, oh man. I would never have thought of that. That is amazing. The the Bible was blocking the microphone. I think Terry alerted me to that. That's good because it might have been awful. Where was I? I asked it this way. This isn't the right way to do it. Again, HTRP, I can get away with it. You can also be HTRPs. There's nothing that says you have to be documented. You know, you just have to be highly trained. Religious professional. The professional is a relative term. Trust me. (laughs) The economic viability of our little operation is not exactly what some would consider professional. (sighs) Ah. I'm going to give you a statement that isn't proper. What exactly was Christ remembering when he made the bodies of Adam and the animals from the dust of the earth? What was he remembering? I'm asking specifically. Another question. Did Christ make the body of Adam from the dust of the earth because he did not in the darkness? Genesis uh, 1, 3, and 4. In other words, when he came as the light of life struck the earth. He did not end the darkness. He divided the darkness from the light. The light which was declared to be good, therefore the darkness, if the light is good, then what is the darkness? The darkness is evil. That's your only option. The darkness is not good. The light is declared good, not the darkness. We know that the darkness prevailed on the earth until it was separated from the light that was good. To repeat a past discussion, the New Jerusalem, Revelation 21, 22 through 26. We talked about the New Jerusalem and the central element of the New Jerusalem, besides having no doors on the gates, is that it has no darkness. And there's a big clue as to why he made the bodies from the dust of the earth. Because you can see that the New Jerusalem has no darkness. The Lamb of God, that's Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus is the light that is good. The light of Christ, the Lamb of God. The light of the Lamb of God is the light of all of the New Jerusalem. How much darkness is in the new city of Jerusalem? None. Why? He did not eliminate all the darkness. Genesis 1, 3 through 5. I stopped at four. At Genesis 1, 1 through 5, the earth is going to go forward now in light and darkness. It's going to have both. Why? And that raises the immediate question, why is Genesis 1 through 5, why is the Genesis 1 through 5 earth not the same as the Revelation 21, 1 through 26 earth? In other words, I have two different earths described in Scripture, one in Revelation and one in Genesis. Why aren't they the same? Unless they are the same, or they were the same. They're clearly not the same as described Genesis 1, 1 through 5. But, was it ever the same? Is there an earth that is described as the new city of Jerusalem somewhere in the Bible? And the answer is yes. Where is that? Let me keep going. If it is, if it was the same, when was it the same? That's the question. It clearly is not the same here. 
Genesis 1, 1 through 5. It's covered in, the, the earth is covered. It's flooded in water and utter darkness. That is not representative of Revelation 21, 1 through 26. Though there are some vestiges, some traces, if you want to think of them that way. Someone might suggest remembrances. That would be me suggesting that. There are remembrances here. There are pieces that have great similarities. In any event, the Genesis 1, 1 through 5, and Revelation 21, 1 through 26, reconciliation is a requirement. Their differences stand in need of harmony. They have to be harmonized because they're not. It doesn't make any sense, but actually it does, doesn't it? Most biblical scholars view the New Jerusalem as a redemptive or a mending. Uh, you might say healing. So they see Genesis 1, 1 through 5 as an issue. Darkness prevails, utter darkness, flooded in water. There is no life. There is no occupant on the earth at that time of any kind. And then all of a sudden we have Revelation 1, or 21, 1 through 26, which is this new glorious city that is 1,500 miles high. 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles deep, and has a triune element to it, or a triad in this case. But it is a cube. As you know, my position is, is there's 300 platforms in it. All of them five miles in, in depth. That would be atmospheric and soil depth. In other words, I believe that they are all set in place. Now, there clearly has to be some kind of stairway system. And as a person that builds stairways, have you noticed that? Yes, it's yeah. gorgeous. Yeah, I've got a lot of touch-up to do, but yeah. that one little piece there was unbelievably difficult because you have to know a lot of math to get that to work. And Lori made a few mistakes. Uh-huh. Yeah, you know, I'm going to have to fix them later. But the only thing perfect on earth is imperfection. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, I just, uh, as much as I teach her how to do these things, she just isn't keeping up. And, and when I sit down on the couch and tell her what to do, we end up with a with a, an issue. That really, to be honest with you, you'll be out in the snow. I, I, well, I've been out in the snow before. So, so okay, me in the snow. Uh, we have some relationships. Okay, now where am I? Genesis one one through five and Revelation twenty one one through twenty six are not the same, but they should be the same. Were they ever the same? And the answer again is yes. And, and again, most biblical scholars, they see this as, as a, re- a restoration. I think healing is a wonderful thing. If one accepts that it's healing is occurring in Revelation 21, 1 through 26, then Genesis 1, 2 through 4 is the condition uh, or event that's traceable to a cause. If, the, if it needs to be healed, why does it need to be healed? What causes it to be in this condition? And, and what is it going to take to heal it, if you wish to put it that way? All of that to say, Genesis 1, 2 through 4, 2 through 5, was the aftermath of some kind of catastrophic incident or series of actions, if you have the healing position. That's the only thing you can do with that, logically. Which is why I continue to emphasize the need for everyone to construct a timeline. You have to have a timeline, in my view, again, of Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14. 
that is a description of what I think is the catastrophe that uh, occurs that is traceable to this condition that is Genesis 1, 1 through 5. That's the fall of Satan. And, uh, and anything that concerns the fall of Satan will bring with it the condemnation or the damnation of Satan, Genesis 3.14. So whenever you talk about uh, the fall of Satan, you have to talk about, or you don't have to, but you should connect immediately the condemnation of Satan. He, God says, uh, says it this way in Genesis 3.14, because you, Satan, have done this. Uh, this is, uh, we've addressed it a little bit before, but here we are again. Because you have done this, you have to define what this is. What is the totality of this? Is it specific only to Adam and Eve? I don't believe it is. I think it has two components to it. You are cursed more, he says. The cursing of Satan uh, obviously is, uh, is for repeating what he did at Ezekiel 28.16. The abundance of his traffic. So he repeats that. That's the fundamental, if you will, with respect to Satan, is that he has what he did at Ezekiel 28, he did at Genesis 3. In other words, Satan took with him into rebellion this one-third of the angelic host, as we know. That's what happened. And then he also corrupted mankind through his uh, deceptions. Mankind, obviously, a participant. I should interject here that... that uh, none of the the third of the angelic hosts that fell with Satan, not one of them, had bodies that were made from the dust of the earth. And there again is another piece of information that helps you understand why he did it. Angels do not have bodies made from the dust of the earth. Mankind has bodies that are made from the dust of the earth. So do animals living beings as as animals that are described as living beings, having the breath of the spirit of life. Anyhow, Satan had two corrupt, poisonous crimes, if you want to think of them that way. One prior to the formation of Adam's body and the breathing into Adam, the breath of the spirit of life, and one subsequent to Genesis 2-7. Not everybody agrees with that. That's what I just said. Not everybody. That's a consensus however, of what we call the timeliners, the people that have made timelines. They look at it and they say, Satan's uh, Ezekiel 28.16 is before the formation of the body of Adam. Now, you may disagree, and a lot of people do. And I, I, uh, I, I don't want to disrespect uh, that the other position or the other positions. I will just say that I'm I'm right. No. I think this is the strongest position. How, how about I put it that way? You can easily disagree with me, and that's perfectly fine. I found that people who disagree with me uh, are quite valuable. I need to know what others think. If you're going to do this job correctly, you better listen to other opinions. Hey, both of these were acts of lawlessness by Satan. They're both acts of darkness, of evil. Um, But they are combined. And they also result in Matthew 25, 41. 
the this causes something in, again, my opinion, and that's the lake of everlasting fire prepared for Satan and his angels. That is the utter darkness, the place of the gnashing of teeth and the weeping, Matthew 8.12. What is utter darkness? God prepared the lake of fire as a place of pure darkness. And that, of course, takes you back to Genesis 1, 1 through 5, doesn't it? Because the earth is in a pure darkness state, completely covered with water. The lake of fire is in pure, utter darkness. What is pure darkness? How would you describe it? If you were in pure darkness, I have been, I taught a little bit, of coach basketball at Bartlett High School. And there's a downstairs underneath the, 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 the building is uh, the athletic department, and there's no windows in there. And one, the power would go out occasionally, and when it did, there is no light at all. None. And you cannot see anything yourself. You cannot do it. You, you are blind. So pure darkness is equivalent to blindness, to groping, to weariness. That's Genesis 19:4-11. That is those that were blinded and they could not find Lot, they could not find the angels, right? They're in utter darkness. It's a continual state of being blind. And if you are blind and in a place that you cannot navigate, then you are also lost and you remain lost. If you can't see you are relying on someone who can see to guide you. And if no one can see, then you are all lost. So try to imagine utter darkness, not a single photon of light. I've said many times that Genesis 1, uh, 1 through 2 is describing not a single photon, which meant it was invisible. Everyone wants to talk about black holes which are, they declare to be singularities or infinities. And I, 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 as you know, I'm incredibly skeptical of black hole theory. Again, it's tied to general relativity. Relativity cannot be reconciled with quantum gravity. Uh, and so I am suspicious. If, gra- if relativity is wrong, and it is agreed that it is wrong, it has to be corrected by qu- a quantum gravity theory, then... How much of it is wrong? Now we're arguing. We know it's wrong. Now we're just arguing how wrong is it? That's my position, as you know. Anyway, contrast the lake of fire to Revelation 21, the place of only light. Light or darkness dims the choices, right? That's it. Okay, where was I? Who knows other than the shadow and the shadow doesn't know. I am overtly inferring, that's not a contradiction in terms, I am overtly inferring that the formation of the body of Adam from the dust of the earth and the combining of the breath of the Spirit of God with the body made from the dust of earth and all of the bodies and all of the living beings I'm saying that's directly associated with the division of the light from the darkness. When he separates the light from the darkness, now we have an explanation as to why he made the body from the dust of the earth. Now let me give you all of those, those passages because they're so important. Genesis 120, 121, 124, 128, 130, 27, 617, 619. 722, Ecclesiastes 12, 6 through 7. All of those verses begin to speak about the 
living breath, the breath of the spirit of life and the body. They start to give you information about it. That combining, if you will, the duality. So what I ultimately am saying, the dust and duality of remembrance are the same question. I said that last week, and they have something to do with light from darkness. They have something to do with the dust of the earth. Why the bodies of living beings go back to the dust of the earth. (sighs) What I mean by duality, dust, and remembrance is that God has an omniscient declaration. When he does something... He's presenting a statement. Some might call his presentation an affidavit. I won't disagree with that. Others, a deposition. I think that's also appropriate. Or a testimony. Others say rebuttal or cross-examination, a sworn statement. All of those descriptions are what? Those are judicial, of, of a judicial nature, which I absolutely think is appropriate because the magisterial aspect is self-evident, in my opinion. It's overwhelmingly so. This is a this is a judicial construction. Ultimately, the position of Satan calls into question. Satan is calling into question the jurisdictional authority of Jesus Christ of the Ancient of Days, Daniel seven. You do not have jurisdiction, is what Satan is saying. So we're having a jurisdictional uh, assessment. And we should expect that Christ would assert his uh, authoritative legitimacy. And many times I have said that there are two groups that have an immediate advantage when reading scriptures. One is lawyers. Because they recognize immediately this is a court document. The others are mathematicians slash physicists. Because they recognize that this is a physicist or physical. uh, It has all of the answers of, of physics in it. The Bible is a legal document. Just give you the words. Testaments. Witnesses. Trials. Judgment. Imprisonment. Acquittal. Exculpation. Pardoning. Innocence. Guilt. Penalty. Criminalities. Jury. We're going to serve on juries. Sentencings and absolutions and forgiveness and mercy and remission and vindication and redemption and dispensations and summons and condemnation, accountability. All of those are themes in Scripture and all of those are judicial themes. And that's just the name, but a, a few of them. Christ himself stood wrongfully, as we know, unlawfully arraigned, indicted, sentenced to an execution, a death penalty, though he was absolutely impeccable, total innocence, unblemished. Wrongfully accused. Wrongfully tried. And he is what? He's not just a judge. He's the Ancient of Days judge. That makes him the judge of what? Of all things, John 5.22. So the judge was put on trial wrongfully. And why did he do that? Why did the Ancient of Days in the flesh, flesh allow himself to be delivered for trial, remanded? Again, Judas did not betray him. God is omniscient. He cannot, you cannot betray omniscient God. What Judas did was remand him for trial. He delivered him. There's a delivery. The, the word means delivery. I can't say that enough. People read it all the time. They see the people who translated scripture. I'm going to say it flat out blew it because they took the delivery aspect the judicial aspect and they put in a betrayal aspect that is in conflict with omniscience 
And it's in every Bible I've ever read. And it's a mistake in my view. But Christ allowed himself to be delivered for trial. He allowed himself to be declared guilty. He didn't interfere. He allowed himself to be sentenced to death. Why do you suppose that he did that? What's his reasons? To, re- to repeat the especially obvious here, Jesus Christ cannot be executed. Oh my gosh. He cannot. He's the breath of the spirit of life. He's the light of life. He's omnipotent. He cannot be executed. Not by a created being with a body of dust. I mean, give me a break. And he says so. He's the light of life. He's life itself as he defines life. He's the one that gets to define it because he is it. So his, his def- definition is all that matters. No one can take his life. He must lay it down. John 10, 17, one of the great statements in Scripture, especially John. John got it. No one can take his life. He said it, Christ did. He will raise himself up, John 2.19. Why do you suppose John included 2.19 and 10.17? His body will not go into corruption, Psalm 16.10. I have a body that did not go into corruption. It's one of the great mysteries uh, of, of all. Let me say this, and I'm going to get some feedback here. Life itself, by definition, if it is life, then it cannot die. If life, if I grant the hypothesis, were to die, then it was never true life. Now, I stole most of that from C.S. Lewis. If H never, if H is not, then she never was. And that you can, you can just extrapolate that to Christ. If He is life, life cannot die. The definition of life is that it cannot die. And if, if life could die, which is a contradiction in terms, mm-hmm. then it's not life. It's never been life. It's just a temporal state waiting to be revealed as a temporal state. That's not life. That's something else. But it isn't life. We say we have life. We won't have life until he gives us the life that is no longer has any physical temporalness. Okay, where was I? I need a shadow. Let me find it. Dust of the earth, duality remembrance. When you begin to recognize that the statements and actions of Jesus God are encompassed in the context of a closing statement, when he says something, when he does something, his actions, they have this judicial closing statement aspect to them, facet, for lack of a better metaphor. At the end of every trial is a closing statement. Then when you understand that, when you see the, again, the magisterial element here, then it's more likely that theological chaotic running amuckness will be avoided. Because there's a lot of theological running amuckness. And amuckness is a word. Amuckness. I like saying amuckness. It's just cool. I hope I made it up. Amuckness is a word because you can take the suffix ness and add it to anything, which I have done. Amuckness. It's uh, similar to adding ish. Yesterday with you two, I added ish to tapeworm, and I came up with tapewormish. Tapewormish, as you know, refers to uh, televangelists. 
But I digress, rant. <laughs> the point is, huzzah, hurrah, a point, page 10. I finally came up with a point by page 10. The point is, is that Christ uses the dust of the earth to make the body of Adam. He did not speak Adam's body into formation from nothing. There is a difference from the angelic existence and the Adamic existence. One is made from the dust of the earth, the other is not. One is in the image of God, the other is not. That begins to tell you why he did it this way. He did not, as he did with the woman, utilize an intermediary either. Now she ultimately, by extension, is from the dust of the earth, right? Because Adam is from the dust of the earth, and so both of them will go to the dust when they die. The body dies, sorry. The body will go. How did the angels come into existence? Then is the obvious question, huh? Can't get more obvious than that one. What was the angelic process? This is the humanity process. We have the humanity process laid out for us. Where is the angelic process? Begin to assess one and create your own. How did the angels go through? How did they come into existence? How long did it take? Remember I asked, how long was Adam's body laying there, perfectly, maybe in a complete static position, but not in corruption, How before the breath of the spirit of life was added to it? How long did it take God, how long did he take, that's a better question, to make, to form the body of Adam? Just imagine the process. How did he do it? Who saw it, Job 38, 7? Did they recognize this is different than how we were made? Did Adam even know how he was made? If he did know how he was made, how did he know? He had to be shown or told, or both. How good is God at at, uh, showing somebody something? That would only require that he would do what? Pull that person into an observational frame of reference that allows him to see it. Which you know he can do. And he has, he does it. He did it with um, others. Okay. He uses the dust of the earth, the earth that had been in darkness, engulfed in water, its utter photon, photonless blackness. That's not easy for me to say. But now it's being restored, being reclaimed. But again, partially, not fully. There's this division, this allowance of darkness to go forward. Why does he allow darkness to go forward? He doesn't do it in Revelation 21. He ends it. But here he allowed it to go forward. Why? So I get this restoration, this reclamation, but again, there's a partiality here. There's not, it isn't, it wasn't eliminated. The darkness was just divided. It was impacted. You want to think of it as being attacked. It was attacked. It was driven back. He, he brings the moon in, doesn't he? What's the purpose of the moon? What does the moon do to the darkness? It provides light in the darkness, doesn't it? And, uh, there was an old show on Disney many, many years ago with the, called The Scarecrow and the Moon Cussers. you ever remember that? Am I the only one old enough to remember the Moon Cussers? The Moon Cussers were pirates and they would, they would curse the moon because it brought light to the darkness. And it made it more difficult for them to attack. So they were called the moon cussers. Well, that always stuck with me. The moon established uh, and uh, by God, and it brought reflective light 
from the thermonuclear device that he put in the sky, if you will, or into the atmosphere, or the cosmology, on the fourth day. So he does attack the darkness, but he doesn't destroy the darkness like he will in Revelation 21. But the light of life came and struck the hidden earth, Genesis 1-3, John 8-12, on the first day. The light of life seems to withdraw, doesn't he? After he institutes the thermonuclear device. So he puts the thermonuclear device up there, and then nuclear fission, thermonuclear, and then he seems to withdraw Psalms 10. He doesn't just leave himself. He is the light of life. He could light it all up just as he does in the New Jerusalem, but he doesn't. He has this, this replacement for him, this typology. Why did he do it like that? Keep in mind that Christ is the judge. Also, he's what in the trial? He's a, the defendant. He ends up being the defendant. He's a defense attorney. Who's the jury? If this isn't a judicial construct, and it is, who's the jury? Who's the accuser? That's an easy one. Frame the question of the dust of the earth inside the parameters of the courtroom, and it'll start to clear up for you, in my view. Ask the reciprocal. What would ensue both legally and accusatorily if omniscience, and, and again, omniscience doesn't allow if, but grant that it does. What would ensue legally and accusatorily if let me say it better this way. That's a terrible way to say it. What would result if Christ had simply thought or spoke Adam's body into reality instead of using the dust of the earth? Wouldn't you say that the dust of the earth is contaminated? It's been in darkness and it's been underwater. It's contaminated. It's not radioactive, but maybe it is. Grant me that. Why would God... Why would Christ use contaminated dust to make the body of Adam? See where I'm headed there? Hopefully you do. He doesn't. Uh, just speak the body into reality. Instead, he redeems the dust, doesn't he? He uses the dust. And most people would say the dust, again, is corrupted. But it's not to God. Notice how I answered the question. If Christ does not use the dust of the earth, what would be the accusations, is what I'm trying to say earlier. Not to imply that Christ is intimidated by his accusers. He's obviously, he's omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. He's, he can't change. He is God, he changes not, Malachi 3.6. But he's also the searcher of the minds and the hearts, Revelation 2.23. That's quite an advantage. He's not intimidated by accusations. He knows the accusations from an outside-of-time perspective. He knows them before they're thought. He can't help it. He's the rememberer. I have made the case for restoration subtly, didn't I, with the dust of the earth, in case you missed it out there in the Internet. The goodness of God is revealed through his long-suffering. He is unwilling that any should perish, 2 Peter 3, 9. That all should come to repentance, all means all. Who has to come to repentance? Repentance of what? I have one-third of the angelic host that has to come to repentance. And Satan has to come to repentance. He uses the dust of the earth. I'm saying all of those things fit together. He's making a statement. 
You come from repentance. You come from unbelief to belief. His long suffering, his refusal to forsake the lost, he's steadfast in extending the hand of salvation. His name is salvation. So he makes the body of Adam and the living animals from the dust of the earth, and that testifies of his salvific intentions. How is that the case? How does making the body testify that he is a saving God and that he wills that none should perish? How does that work? Again, I've answered that question already. I'm just asking it so that you can answer it yourself. Where does the remembrance fit into all of this? Why is he the rememberer? Okay, I asked earlier, page four, what was Christ specifically exactly remembering? I'm trying to collapse it, aren't I? I can't do that, but I'm going to ask it this way again. <laughs> what was Christ specifically remembering when he made the body of Adam from the dust of the earth? The easy answer, of course, is that the best answer. Christ is remembering everything. I know that. Christ remembered everything because, again, he's the divine rememberer. Which is why I raised Hebrews 8.12, Jeremiah 31.34, and Jeremiah 50.20 last week. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. What? The iniquity of Israel shall be sought, but there shall be none. And the sins of Judah, but they shall not be found. For I will pardon those whom I preserve. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. How does the rememberer not remember? That is a great mystery. And that's, that's the, one of the central secrets that's hidden there. How can the divine rememberer forget not remember the sins of those whom he will pardon? He's got to know them in order to pardon them. And then he says once they're pardoned, he doesn't remember them anymore. How can he not remember them is the question. That's, again, a central secret. A few quick annotations here. Israel and Judah. He says Israel and Judah. That's the northern kingdom and the Davidic kingdom. That's Jeroboam and the unnamed prophet. First Kings 13. I will pardon whom I preserve, he says. Pardon is a what? What's a pardon? Where do you get a pardon? You get it from an executive, but it's a, it's a it's a judicial, a statutory edict. It's a ruling. It's a proclamation. Christ goes before the imprisoned fallen angels, First Peter three nineteen and twenty, and Second Peter two four, and Jude six and Genesis six. He goes to see them in the interim between his entombment and his resurrection, and he announces his verdict to them. Because why? He's the judge. His reasons are plenty. But if, if I'm going to elevate one, just one reason, in my opinion, being the most humbler of all the humbler opinions here, the one reason would be that he, as the Ancient of Days, read his verdict to the sons of God, of Judas 6 and Genesis 6. That's why he went down there to see them. It was to read the verdict. Now, there are other aspects of it I don't disagree, but that, if I had to just pick one out and say, what is the central, what's the big kahuna here, the big, the, the Megillah? Uh, that would be it. He's going to read his verdict as judge, as the Ancient of Days, to the Genesis 6, Jude 6 angel. Again, the conduct of a judge, John 5.27, 
through 30. That's what he's doing. This is the conduct of a judge. The Father has given the Son the authority to execute judgment. Then it says this, because He is the Son of Man. Because He is the Son of Man, He has the authority to execute judgment. And and it says, do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in graves will hear His voice and come forth. They will come forth and they will be met by who? And it's all. The day is coming. That's not the same day. There's a procession here. There's an anatomy. There's a timeline. All will come forward before the judge. Those who have done good, and, and John 5.24 says, those who believe Jesus Christ, what he says about himself. That's the context. They will come. Those who have believed Jesus Christ will come forth to the resurrection of life. And those who have done evil, in other words, the unbelief, they will come forth to the resurrection of condemnation. So there's a resurrection of life and a resurrection of condemnation. Uh, Those who believe, John 5.24, shall not come into judgment. For today, just note the universality here of the resurrections. Everybody is resurrected. There's all resurrection. He is the one who resurrects. There is no unresurrected ones. Figure out who is not resurrected. Make a list. There's nobody on your list. Some are resurrected to life. Some are resurrected to condemnation. Many, actually. All are resurrection. All come before the judge of all things, John 5.22. Some are preserved and pardoned, and he will remember their sins no more. Even though he's the rememberer, and he's omniscient, he's outside of time, he's infinite. And many are condemned. So, two. Okay, got to move fast now, really fast. Fortunately, I've only got one more page to go. That means I'm only going to take a half hour. (laughs) If I could also elevate a singular reason, assign primacy to the purpose of Christ as to the construction of the body of Adam from the dust of the earth, of all the issues, and again, he has all of these issues and he mixes them all together. And so there's all of this, this... uh, extraordinary matrixy here, matrix. Three-dimensional chess is all what I used to say when I was younger, but this does, that doesn't even begin to... There are three dimensions to it, to the Bible. That we would expect. But if I could just pick one, you force me to pick one. Why did he... What is the purpose? What's the number one reason that he made the body of Adam from the dust of the earth? Of all the issues, which one did Christ accredit predominance to? In the past, I've attempted to make a list. And then I'd stare at it and try to pick, a, pick one. And I had a really long list. And I kept saying, well, that's the one, no, that won't work. This is the one, that won't work. So I tried today to get it to three. And then you can decide which one you like, but your list might be quite different than mine. Satan cannot cause God to annihilate. That was on my list. Cannot do it. There is no annihilation and he cannot make God even remotely annihilate. Mankind's really proud of themselves. We think we can annihilate things with thermonuclear bombs. We cannot. 
Satan cannot cause God to annihilate. The mineral Eden of Ezekiel 28 was flooded. It is in darkness. It is in chaos. It was unseen. There wasn't one photon of light. Yet it remained. No one knew it. It may have looked like it was annihilated, but it was not. God always renews. He always resurrects. He always reclaims. It is the lesson of Job. It's why I'm so adamant about Job. At the end of Job, those are not different children. New children. Born of a different wife. They are not replacements. You see this theme. Why don't I eliminate Israel and build a new Israel through you, Moses? That's a a dramatic theodicy. That is God presenting this very situation in a way that humans can understand it. Job's children are not replacement. They are Job's children resurrected. That's how it works. It can only work that way. We see this template again throughout Scripture. The the law of Moses is prophecy fulfilled by Christ. He didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to what? Fulfill them, Matthew 5, 17 through 20. The law of the prophets testify of Christ. He's not going to get rid of them. He doesn't get rid of the... He carries the sacrificial system into the millennium. Now, there is, the, there is life itself sitting there in the temple. How many animals die? How can they die? No one ever dies around Christ. Look it up. So he, there's still a sacrificial system of some kind, but it's a memorial system. It is not... What you see in the Old Testament, God does not abolish. He brings forward the ingredients of the past, if you want to think of it that way. This is one of the fundamentals of of what I would consider intelligent dispensationalism versus crazy dispensationalism. You can see that he's always bringing things along. He doesn't get rid of anything. He's like like somebody that, he's a hoarder. (laughs) That's what he is. That's why he and I, never mind. I had a 1972 uh, Pontiac out here with a 455 in it, 454 maybe. I have to think about it. But it was a, it was a fantastic man. That thing could move. I loved that car. I couldn't ever afford to fix it. It sat in the driveway. We stared at it for years, me and Lori. Finally, we gave it away to somebody that fixed it because I didn't want it to go away. I have jackets that I that I owned when I was with the railroad. Okay, so I do have a dysfunctional personality, but it is godlike. I'm kidding. <laughs> Trying to justify that to Lori. She's not listening. Okay. He brings forward, if you will. He memorializes. Jerusalem is going to be Jerusalem, isn't it? Is it the same Jerusalem as it has always been? No. It still has this, it has a lot of similarities, but there are also great differences. It'll have a new greater purpose, for example. The tree of life is in it. So he brings the tree of life all the way from Genesis 2 to Revelation 21. He brings Jerusalem. They come forward. They're not abolished. The body of Adam, our bodies follow this process. It's the same body. Your body will absolutely be resurrected and you'll know it's your body. You'll know it's your friends and your family's body. Again, the lesson of Job. You'll know. But it's different in a slight. He, he makes adjustments, improvements, if you will. He doesn't throw out the Pontiac. He fixes it up, repaints it, adds new situations or new uh, capabilities. We're going to judge that. Okay, so we have that element, annihilation. Number two, we're going to judge the fallen angels. Why? Why are we judging the fallen angels? 
What's the this is angel fall versus man fall. What's the key differences between the fall of angels and the fall of man? What's the same? Is the construction of the body of Adam referring to the fall of the angels? I guess is a way to. And if it is, how so? Is that the reason he did it? Because it's different. But angels have swords. They can eat. They can fight. But they're not made from the dust of the earth. And they're not in the image of God. What does Sheba and Nineveh have to do with this? Because they're judging the Pharisees, aren't they? They're judging Israel. So I have that that situation to, to combine here. Angels always see the face of God. Always see the face of God. Moses saw the face of God face to face. But angels always do. Matthew 18, 10. Angels are not in the image of God. Hebrews 1, 14 and 2, 6. I'll stop there. I didn't give you my full list. I'll do it next week. Okay, I won't. I'll add to this one. I'll bring this one forward into next week. Wow. Does he do it?